people in the media are like, it, the court is split along ideological lines, conservative and liberal. And when I read it, I didn't interpret it like that at all. What are we talking about right now? Colorado seeks to compel this speech in order to excise certain ideas or viewpoints from the public dialogue. That's so interesting. The court, the Supreme Court of the United States said that sentence. Colorado seeks to compel this speech in order to excise certain ideas or viewpoints from the public dialogue. The Social Psycho Confabulation with Ben and Mr. A. Okay, well, welcome everybody. Hello. We are going to talk Hello. about these Supreme Court rulings because everybody is talking about it online and they are all incredibly misinformed. It is absolutely ridiculous. So we are going to spend some time digging into what the actual rulings say so that we're all informed on what's actually going on. Yeah, misinformed or like willfully ignorant you know, willfully like, ignorant, yeah. willfully ignorant. Like we're, it's a very directed, purposeful. I'm drinking um, elderflower and rose lemonade. Anyways, let's continue. Oh, perfect. Also, for all listening, this is the second time we are having this conversation uh, because the first time uh, I got cut off and we didn't have enough time to talk about it at the length and depth that we wanted to. So we're rehashing this discussion to be more informed and hopefully give the topic its its due. This is probably what we ought to do anyways, but it's just too much work to do the conversation and then do the conversation a second time. But I feel like every time we've done that, we've done really well the next time. Oh, good. Yeah, I, I hope we're not doing this one. But okay, well, let's get into it. Um, so I was seeing all sorts of nonsense on Twitter about uh, these rulings. And so I was like, I got to start reading into this. What does the actual ruling say? And I just got to say, the actual ruling gave me hope for America. I was like, I can't believe there's a vestige of culture in America that is still so philosophically uh, rigorous and interesting and full of debate. And it just made me proud. I was like, wow, the court is like awesome. I was like, they are summarizing so much of United States history and court precedent and applying it to these nuanced situations and defending the Constitution. And I was like, this is awesome. Like, why are people like ragging on the Supreme Court right now? I was like, if you just read the thing, I was like impressed by what it said. So and the quality of the writing. Yeah, like the depth of what's being said versus the reaction to what the decision was is it really illuminates the problem and mm. it, it 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 really makes clear why, you know, since basically the dawn of philosophy, like Plato, his whole theory of like the basically the perfect society is the perfect society is ruled by philosopher kings. And that's kind of predicated on the idea that the pol the polis, the the people are kind of ridiculous and they're very susceptible to like rhetoric and grandstanding and all this stuff and it's yeah. like the people who are supposed to be this is used to be a really hot topic and now we've kind of moved past this but it used to be 
we, you know, there was like a little moment there where we were all talking about like the failure of the media being rigorous and actually journalistic. Right. Because it's just, because I mean, once you compare the two, it's like, wow, these could not, I don't even know if the people commenting are even capable right, of, understanding. Of, the t- of the level of thought <laughs> yeah. that has gone into the writing. Whether you agree or not on the actual terms of what was said, you're not even addressing it. They're literally, it's like they didn't read it. They're just straw. They, let's just create straw men and just defeat them all over the place. Literally. So, yeah. No, there was a, a tweet by uh, Mayor Wu of, she's like the mayor of Boston. And she shared this thing that was like, this decision today about, uh, I can't remember which one it was about affirmative action or race conscious policies or whether it was the free speech one. But it was like this decision undoes years of precedent and whatnot. And I literally just tweeted back. I was like, the fact is literally the opposite. Like, read the opinion. Read the opinion. It is the dissent (laughs) that wants to undo the prior precedent. It is the opinion that was ruled that is in consistency with the precedents that have been set. So I was like, this is Uh, actually that's really that must that must be a talking point because the thing that I the content I was exposed to or exposed myself to was saying it seemed to be kind of saying the same thing in a weird way. It was like like that this is like some kind of reversal of something that had been predetermined they brought up the, te- the they brought up the Harvard case the UNC case and then they brought up a Texas case which I don't remember I don't think we talked about that one but there hmm. was some case in Texas but I guess through this amalgamation of commentary they came out with you know therefore this is like some kind of conservative racist reversal of to like back to the days of slavery basically you know i mean it's just like wow what are we talking about right now okay so let's get into it i'm going to read the actual thing um so this is from the syllabus just summarizing the case so apparently when the court delivers its opinion uh sometimes they include a syllabus which is sort of uh the court reporter writes a summary of the case uh it's it's relatively brief. It's only eight pages <laughs> compared to the <laughs> actual opinion written by each justice, which is about 50 pages long. So, the syllabus is the TLDR. Yes. Too long, didn't read. Exactly. But it's eight pages, so <laughs> you still need to read. <laughs> <laughs> too, t- still too long. <laughs> uh, Somebody tweet about this so I can figure out what's going on. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. So it says, Harvard College and the University of North Carolina, UNC are two of the oldest institutions of higher learning in the United States. Every year, tens of thousands of students apply to each school, and many fewer are admitted. Both Harvard and UNC employ a highly selective admissions process to make their decisions. Admission to each school can depend on a student's grades, recommendation letters, or extracurricular involvement. It can also depend on their race. The question presented is whether the admissions systems used by Harvard College and UNC are lawful under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. So that's what the case is about. It's whether or not these two race-conscious, race-based admissions policies at UNC and Harvard are lawful under the 14th Amendment, essentially. So that's the background. Then they go into um, how the admissions process works at each college. I'll maybe spare us from that uh, 
conversation. But essentially, race is part of the review process for students' applications, and it sort of insinuates that race can be a positive for uh, certain minorities. So, if someone is black or Hispanic, right. So the petitioner, the people who are bringing this case uh, against Harvard and UNC, are the Students for Fair Admissions, the SFFA, which is a nonprofit organization whose stated purpose is to quote defend human and civil rights secured by law, including the right of individuals to equal protection under the law. End quote. So um, they filed separate lawsuits against Harvard and US. UNC, um, arguing that their race-based admissions programs violate, respectively, Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Um, and then they sort of combined these cases into one. Um, and then, uh, blah, 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 legal jargon. Um, okay, let's get to the ruling. They go through all this stuff about, like, why this court can hear the case and how they have standing. Because part of the, the ruling is that they have to prove that they have standing to bring the case so that essentially you have to have legitimate grounds to say, like, I have you know been harmed or whatever. This is a genuine public interest to bring this case. And so they go through an argument about why SFFA does have genuine grounds to bring the case. While you look, I'll say this. This is just totally random. I was doing some work at this lady's house, like just handyman work. And I kind of know the family, you know, family friends on my dad's side. And one of the kids is pretty smart. And you know this because he's, I knew one of these guys too when I was in high school, where like basically, I don't know if he was like the valedictorian or something, but there was a guy, Roman. And he was, to me, known as like the most prolific pot dealer at the school. Complete pothead. Hell yeah. <laughs> and was also apparently the smartest kid in the school. So this is one of those kind of kids, you know, like party kid, mm. pot smoker, but like also can get into Georgia Tech, which is a good school. So they say. Uh, so he applied. I did not know this. So this lady, this is, I guess it was grandmother whose house I was working at. And I guess she was just reading on on her iPad or something. And she got up. She's like, oh, did you hear? You know, they undid that. Uh, she was talking about something. And then she just, she like threw in, you know, they also undid that affirmative action thing. She said, that that's good. Oh. And I was like, oh. I said, yeah, that's that's interesting. You know, she said, you know. Jackson, that's this kid's name. Um, when he applied, so he's in, he's at Georgia Tech. She goes, when he applied to Georgia Tech, the, originally, he couldn't get in the the first time he applied, mm. and the reason was, and I, she, she, she said this. This is how this is this this is the conversation. She goes, the reason was because he was white. Oh my god! And I said, what? I've like, literally heard what this. What do you mean? Yeah. And she goes, yeah, the admissions people told him. Oh, like, wow. That's blatant. And I said, they told, the school told him that? And she said, yeah, that when he, the admissions people told him, like, listen, 
you you qualify, but not for whites. Like I I don't know what the story because she we, we were I was working, you know what I mean. Like she was just kind of saying this, so just based on knowing them, I'm guessing this kid knew. I qualify. I know people in this school. I know what it takes to get into this school. I should be getting into this school. So, oh, I, like, I'm above wow. the, what it requires to get into this school. And she, and so I'm guessing that's he probably confronted the admissions department and said, "Like, what are you talking about? Like, I know tons of kids here, and I'm beyond yeah. their capabilities no. and and everything." And they were like, "Yeah, well, here's the deal." And I don't know if they told him this, but he's at Georgia Tech. So my guess is, this is just speculation, but the most logical thing I can imagine that actually happened is they probably said, apply for next semester. Oh my God. Like, you know, get yeah. on, get in quicker basically and you'll be, you'll be fine. So I thought that's interesting. I should bring that up because I don't know. You know what I mean? Like I got into this, I, I went into college in a weird, in a different way that I don't even know if it really mattered. Mm. I I probably qualify. I was probably another cohort that they're interested in, which is non college or non high school graduates that still excel. You know, right? You were a little older at the time. Yeah, yeah. I transferred in. That's it's a kind of a trick. People know that if you it's easier to if you want to work the system, you can't. It's easier to transfer into a college than to get from another college. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I didn't graduate high school. I'm and I transferred to Georgia State and then to UGA. Based on like good grades or whatever, I don't know, but uh, yeah. So anyway, I just thought it was really uh, what's the word relevant? I guess yeah. that she just offered this little anecdote, and I was like, oh, wow, because now I actually have firsthand, essentially, evidence that there is something interesting to this, and it's not because that's going to be a major point. Yeah, I think yeah. eventually is that is that we can look at this as just groups of people. But at the individual level, it matters a lot. Right, right. Especially when you're talking about the amount of effort, time, money, the the life decisions people make. That was the other thing that she would brought up. Uh, another thing that she brought up was that they did not allow that thing to stand, uh, the student loan forgiveness, the student loan forgiveness, that that was another thing that didn't go through and or or got struck down, I guess, by the Supreme Court or something. But she was glad that happened. Yeah. And mm-hmm. beca- and she was basically saying, like, I would be pissed, you know? And I said, I, I, mm. I said, yeah, you know, pe- I know people that, like, de- like, develop the trajectory of their life based on school loans. Yeah. You know? So, anyways, I just, that was the other little mildly related note. Yeah. No, that's interesting. I, yeah. I'm not going to talk about that one today because I haven't read that one. But yeah, I know. The affirmative action or race-conscious admissions policy, though, here's the decision um, in summary. Because Harvard's and UNC's admissions programs lack sufficiently focused and measurable objectives warranting the use of race, unavoidably employ race in a negative manner, involve racial stereotyping, and lack meaningful endpoints, those admissions programs cannot be reconciled with the guarantees of the Equal Protection Clause. So that's essentially the ruling. So, and we can go through that a little more deeply. So essentially, based on the prior law and precedents that have been set by the Supreme Court, if you had race-conscious admissions programs or race-conscious policies, they were very limited. And so they were limited in sort of three ways. And so those things they just listed 
were ways in which these programs were operating outside of the ways in which they were limited by the law. So they weren't sufficiently focused and measurable. So that's the first doctrine. They had to have um, be under strict scrutiny. So meaning that the court can review what you're doing, but because they can't measure it, the court can't review it. So they were saying that's an infraction. You're operating outside the law in that way. The second thing was that you couldn't harm racial groups or involve racial stereotyping, which they also found that both of these programs were doing. And then lastly, they had to be limited in time. And so the court said, if you're operating a race-based you know, emissions program, it can't be forever. It has to have a very clear endpoint. And these programs had no clear endpoint. So they said they failed on all of those three restrictions. Where did that requirement come from? That was another court case or something at some point? Yeah, so those requirements had come from prior uh, cases about race-conscious mm-hmm. emissions. I think it's a variety of cases. One of them was uh, University of California versus Baki. Um, there was also Grutter. Uh, I can't remember who that one was right. versus. But essentially, so they're taking all of the, the cases that have come that had this sort of uh, law being put into question. Um, and so, so that's just the... Um, Syllabus, but I wanted to read some of Chief Justice Roberts' opinion. So apparently, different judges can deliver the opinion. In this case, Chief Justice Roberts delivered the opinion of the court. And he says some really just interesting things. Um, Okay. So we'll go through sort of like what he says about each of those three limitations and how the universities were operating outside of the limitations that the court had already ruled upon. So the first one, this, this is a, I'm going to read directly from the opinion now. And I'm actually going to, I think, avoid p- putting things in quotes because there's so many quotes in here that it gets hard to be like, quote, unquote, quote, unquote, <laughs> quote, 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 <laughs> because they're just constantly citing case law. So it says, because racial discrimination is invidious in all contexts, We have required that universities operate their programs in a manner that is sufficiently measurable to permit judicial review under the rubric of strict scrutiny. So that's the first thing we just talked about. And that's from a case called Fisher versus University of Texas at Austin. That may have been the case you were talking about a second ago. Mm, Maybe. So it goes on to say, classifying and assigning students based on their race requires more than an amorphous end to justify it. Respondents so UNC and Harvard, have fallen short of satisfying that burden. First, the interests they view as compelling cannot be subjected to meaningful judicial review. Harvard identifies the following educational benefits that it's pursuing. So these are like the goals of Harvard's race-based admissions program. So it says, one, training future leaders in the public and private sectors. Two, preparing graduates to adapt to an increasingly pluralistic society. Three, better educating its citizens through diversity. And four, producing new knowledge stemming from diverse outlooks. So the court says, although these are commendable goals, they are not sufficiently coherent for the purposes of strict scrutiny. At the outset, it is unclear how courts are supposed to measure any of these goals. So essentially, they failed that first restriction, which is like you have to be able to be you know, scrutinized by the courts, and these are not measurable goals. Blah, blah, blah. They go on to argue more about that. There's lots of interesting stuff in here to read, but I will spare us all to go to the second uh, criteria. So 
The race-based admission systems that respondents employ also fail to comply with the twin commands of the Equal Protection Clause, that race may never be used as a negative, and that it may not operate as a stereotype. First, our cases have stressed that an individual's race may never be used against him in the admissions process. So that's what UNC and Harvard are saying. They're saying, race will never be used against you. Here, however, the First Circuit found that Harvard's consideration of race has led to an 11.1% decrease in the number of Asian Americans admitted to Harvard. So it is clearly harming Asian Americans because when they instituted these race-conscious admissions programs, suddenly Asian Americans you know, stopped getting admitted to Harvard. And the district court observed that Harvard's policy of considering applicants' race overall results in fewer Asian Americans and white students being admitted. So both Asian Americans and white students are being harmed, which are both racial categories. Respondents nevertheless, so UNC and Harvard, nonetheless contend that an individual's race is never a negative factor in their admissions programs. But that assertion cannot withstand scrutiny. Harvard, for example, draws an analogy between race and other factors it considers in admission. While admissions officers may give a preference to applicants likely to excel in the Harvard Orchestra, Harvard explains, that does not mean it is a negative not to excel at a musical instrument. But on Harvard's logic, while it gives preference to applicants with high grades and test scores, quote, that does not mean it is a negative to be a student with lower grades and lower test scores. This understanding of the admissions process is hard to take seriously. College admissions are zero-sum, a benefit provided to some applicants but not to others necessarily advantages the former group at the expense of the latter. So they go on to argue more about that. Blah, blah, blah. And so we'll go on to the third thing that they failed, the third sort of restriction. If all this were not enough, respondents' admissions programs also lack a logical endpoint. Respondents and the government first suggest that respondents' race-based admissions programs will end when, in their absence, there is meaningful representation and meaningful diversity on college campuses. The metric of meaningful representation, respondents assert, does not involve any strict numerical benchmark, precise number or percentage, or a specified percentage. So what does it involve? Numbers all the same. At Harvard, each full committee meeting begins with the discussion of how the breakdown of the class compares to the prior year in terms of racial identities. And if at some point in the admissions process it appears that a group is notably underrepresented or has suffered a dramatic drop-off prior to the, to the last year, relative to the prior year, sorry, the admissions committee may decide to give atten additional attention to applicants from students within that group. And then essentially, they say, the admissions process reflect this numerical commitment. And so you see how they show the share of the class that's African-American, the share of the class that's Hispanic, and the share of the class that's Asian-American from the years 2009 to 2018, and how stable those percentages remain across the years. So they're, you know, essentially, numbers need to stay the same. That's why they're, that's essentially how these programs work, is that they ensure that the percentage of a certain racial group does not change year to year. And they were saying, because that's the purpose of the program, is that the percentages don't change, it will never have an end. That will always have to be in place. And so that is illegal or unconstitutional. Blah, blah, blah. They also go in uh, to say more about that. And so anyway, so I wanted to get to 
yeah, uh, his sort of opinion here because I thought he wrote it very poetically at the end. Um, did you, by the way, did you read the dissenting opinion? So, so there's in this uh, opinion, there is literally, I think, five. Almost all of the judges wrote an opinion. It's 250 pages long. I read the syllabus, which is eight pages of summary, and the chief, uh, you know, Justice Powell, or not Chief Justice Powell, that's a former Chief Justice, Chief Justice Roberts, that's the one who I'm reading right now. I read all of his opinion, and then I read some of the dissent by Justice Jackson, uh, which apparently... Oh. Yeah, go ahead. Interesting. Well, because I was just looking, I was I was looking for the dissenting opinion, and I I did I thought I was reading. I was like, oh my god, this dissenting opinion is hundreds of pages. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> no, they're but all this compiled. Is, this into is the whole thing. Document. So they're all compiled into it. Yeah. So I guess what I was reading, I was just came. I'm like just kind of scanning these hundreds of pages. It's very long. And I'm, yes. I was yeah. I was looking for dissent. So I'm looking at. So Jackson dis- was a dissenter? Yes. So Jackson, yes. Kagan, yeah, and yeah. Sotomayor were the dissent in this case. They were the of three were. that dissented. And they were led, I don't know exactly, I think, so it's like led by Sotomayor. She delivered the assent- dissenting opinion, but then you can see the dissents from uh, Jackson, Sotomayor, and I, I'm not sure if Kagan wrote one in here. Yeah, I'm. I just came across a line, and I'm like, "Oh my god, this is such a." Oh my god. Okay, we'll get to it in a second. So it's such a nuanced pro- situation. Yeah, let me just read um, the final, you know, ending point here from uh, Chief Justice Roberts. Um, so he says, "Nothing in this opinion should be construed as prohibiting universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected his or her life." be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise. But, despite the assent's assertion to the contrary, universities may not simply establish through application essays or other means the regime we hold unlawful today. What cannot be done directly cannot be done indirectly. The Constitution deals with substance, not shadows, and the prohibition against racial discrimination is leveled at the thing, not the name. A benefit to a student who overcame racial discrimination, for example, must be tied to that student's courage and determination, or a benefit to a student whose heritage or culture motivated him or her to assume a leadership role or attain a particular goal must be tied to that student's unique ability to contribute to the university. In other words, the student must be treated based on his or her experiences as an individual, not on the basis of race. Many universities... In other words, you can't be like, we just need... But we need a black guy. Right, right. Because... Literally, that's that's what he's saying. We we can't do that. Right. (laughs) And then he finally says, many universities for too long have done just the opposite. And in doing so, they have concluded wrongly that the touchstone of an individual's identity is not challenges bested, skills built, or lessons learned, but the color of their skin. Our constitutional history does not tolerate that choice. The judgment of the Court of Appeals for the First Circuit and of the District Court for the Middle District of North Carolina are reserved. You know, that quote really, I because now I've heard it a few times, and I'm that to me really sounds like a warning. A warning that that's saying, look, every university 
is going to take a look at their admissions processes right now. Yeah. And oh, yeah. I think I take that as a warning to say, because he, he said this, the quote, which is, uh, this is aimed at the thing, not the name. Right. Deals so in substance. you can call. So, so do not. So it's a warning. It's saying, do not go and do the same thing and call it something different. Right. So if, and then he gives like examples, like you cannot, he's basically saying you cannot take essays that talk about individuals' blackness and their and the effect that that's had on them, or their brownness, or whatever thing they want to they want to say, which they can say, like he said just prior to this quote. You can this can all be considered, right? But you can't just do the same thing under a different name. Basically, you can't call your ad, now you can't call your admission letters. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you can't call them, you know, you can't say, no, we're just judging admission letters and continue the same practice. You have to think hard about this and you have to figure a way around the freaking problem because the problem is interesting and multifaceted. Right. So I, th- I hear that as almost like a warning, like going yeah. forward, this is something that needs to be thought of very carefully. Well, I think you made a really good point the last time we talked and I wanted to bring it up again which is if the harm, the discrimination, the whatever difficulty you've faced as you know the product of your race or whatever, if that is legitimate, then you don't need to cite race. You can just cite the harm. The, yeah, the part about it being you that your opinion or or the reality of it being racially motivated is actually an ancillary point. That's, exactly. You know, it's or a tertiary point, like something that's it doesn't matter. If, if the university is making its decisions according to this, what the Supreme Court is saying, which is you have to evaluate the individual. You cannot just say we need so many black people. So therefore, if we get down to brass tacks and the process hasn't worked out to get us enough black people, we're just going to knock some off the top and bring some up um, from the bottom like that. You can't do that. Right. So right. if someone says I had X, Y and Z ad, uh, adversity in my life. All so the tertiary part, the way that it's tertiary, the way that it's ancillary is it is a supporting claim. Perhaps I came from the, X background, sure, whatever, whatever. Yes. Well, I mean, there's a place around here like that's just used as like a microcosm. Like it's I used to live there, so I am allowed to say this. Uh, it's called Little Mexico. You know, if you grew up and and by the way, if you were applying to, let's say it was just University of Georgia or someplace somewhat local. You could bring that up and it would be relevant because there's no way that anybody at the admission office knows about the this little Mexico in this zip code out here in, you know, north north of Atlanta. So there's so you could say I grew up in a place that's called Little Mexico. It was this way. This is how it, it was there. You know, being Mexican and my parents being immigrants didn't necessarily forced me into that position, but made it a kind of an obvious place for us to live. There's a community there, people that have been here longer than us that know what they're doing, know how to make make the rounds, figure out things. There's, you know, a common culture, a way to ease anxiety, et cetera, et cetera. That's all fine. But that, and that is all, all the points that are relevant have nothing actually to do with Mexican. It doesn't matter. What matters is that this is real adversity that you had and they're they're nameable actual things, you know, poverty, right. inability to communicate, 
there may there may have been some lack of opportunity. Bring it up if you think it's relevant, if it seems like it applies, et cetera, et cetera. But it, it's just even consider like as you think through those things, they do get very fishy. You know, it's very right. difficult to and this is the stereotyping to point like go that, down those lines of thinking. Yeah, this is the stereotyping point that they were making, which is like the way they're doing it now is saying that merely because you're black, that means you didn't have opportunity. And merely because you're white, that means you did have opportunity. And they said that is stereotyping and that is not acceptable. Some black people had opportunity. Some black people didn't. Some white people had opportunity. Some white people didn't. It has to be based on the individual. And you need to specifically be able to cite what adversity they're specifically talking about. Yeah. Otherwise, so you'll get sued. <laughs> like, that's right. what is going on here. Yeah. So, but you were saying, um, you did you read some of uh, Jackson's rebuttal? So, I read some of Jackson's dissent, and it was so interesting because people in the media are like, it, the court is split along ideological lines, conservative and liberal. And when I read it, I didn't interpret it like that at all. I was like, one of these sounds like it's rooted in precedent and case law and principle. The other one just sounds ideological. It's not like two ideologies. It's like one is principled, one is ideological. Well, what's so fucked up and that's oh so problematic about this whole situation, because at first, to be honest, I was like, this is going to be a boring podcast. You know, like, who cares? And then I quickly realized, like, Everyone's going to be talking about this. And as soon as everyone starts running their mouths, it, you know, the, the stuff reveals itself. So you have the, exactly what you just said, this whole, hey, let us tell you what just happened. Right. Uh, it's all about Republican versus Democrat. It's all about conservative versus liberal. That's what's going on here. And that, that so that is what every, that is what 90 nine percent of the whole entire voting population of people is going to think because that is what the freaking media is going to tell them and it's already happening that's ex that is literally the punchline that i heard from the thing that the first thing that i saw on this matter clicked on it just off of like searching for some content about it was well it's just split along ideological like that was that's a talking point. Everyone is going I bet you you could make a montage of that exact <laughs> God, phrase. Literally. That this is all the court Supreme Court was split on its decision about affirmative action along ideological lines. I bet you will hear that in every single outlet. Because that's what the, that's the main point that needs to be made, according to them, they, yeah. the controllers that want to do this bullshit. Yes, and they didn't even read but, the thing. So I'll just read a little bit of Jackson's dissent. And I just, I feel like immediately to me, it's very different than Chief Justice Roberts. So, but you can make let, your let own opinion. Let me give you my, let me give you my quote first. Oh, I, okay. I didn't read as much as you did. And then that way, if you, as you go, if you have, if it touches on this point that I'm reading, then you can elaborate. But this is what I'm, I was scrolling through trying to look for the dissenting opinion. And I found this. And I guess this is from Roberts' dissent. Roberts' dissent? Oh, I mean, uh, ja sorry, Jackson's dissent. Oh, okay, okay. So it says, we returned, so she's obviously given some hypothetical cases, John and James, where, and this is in regards, well, you'll see. We return to John and James now with history in hand. It's hardly John's fault that he is the seventh generation to graduate from University of North Carolina. 
So when you get admitted, sometimes your legacy is included as a deciding factor. So that's obviously what she's invoking here. Yes, and that was admitted in the case. It's part of the brief. They described the admissions process. They consider legacy. Right. So UNC should permit him to honor that legacy. Neither, however, was it James's fault or his family's fault that he would be the first to graduate UNC. And UNC ought to be able to consider why. That's the only quote. The context comes flooding in. You know exactly where she's coming from. If you have any, if you, you know what I mean? I mean, it's just obvious that there's, I'm not even going to call it ideological, but I'm, this is to me like the, I guess the, the meaningful minutia or something where, because I listened to the all in guys and they were touching on things that, you know, were, I mean, they're billionaires. So they're, I feel like they (laughs) thought quickly about the idea of legacy and buying your way into Harvard, basically. Mm, Which is a thing that was a huge scandal. It's come out it's awful, terrible. Yeah. Like they, these billionaires on that podcast, they knew the price tag. Yes, yes. Like it costs X million dollars to get into this school, it costs X million dollars to get in this school. Like they know what it costs to get your kid into these schools. And their point, I think, was like, hey, you can do, they were kind of like, you could do that too if you want, but like you just have to be honest. Yeah. Like say what you're doing. Well, that's another talking <laughs> point. You're letting point in dummies for money. That I've heard is like so many people coming out and being like, well, what about legacy admissions? And I'm like, those are also kind of bad. I don't think those are fair, and those should also be pursued. But that's not part of this case, and the Supreme Court can't rule on that, which is ironic because this is the same party of people who are like, the Supreme Court is making policy. And I'm like, they're literally not. If they were making policy, they would have said something like, you also can't consider legacy admissions, which wasn't part of the original case. So I'm like, so incoherent on this side. But anyway... Yeah. Back to just it all just there all of it falls on the decision falls upon what the Fourteenth Amendment basically right That's exactly their, and some and a little bit of precedent right a lot of precedent yes so Justice Jackson writes this and this is just the beginning I'll just read some of her dissent so you can make up your mind for yourself because I don't want to bias you um, as I probably already have. Gulf-sized race-based gaps exist with respect to the health, wealth, and well-being of American citizens. That is the first sentence, and there is no source. I was literally going to say, source, please. Prove it. Yeah, there is no source. So, I just, just on its face, the first sentence comes out, you know, the cart blazing or whatever, or the, whatever you call that. Assumption number one. Yes. So... They were created in the distant past, but have indisputably been passed down to the present day through the generations. Every moment these gaps persist is a moment in which this great country falls short of actualizing one of its foundational principles, the self-evident truth that all of us are created equal. Now here I would like to pause because this is a very fine point. We live in a free country, which means equal opportunity, not equal outcome. We are not born completely alike. We are not born the same person. We all have uniqueness. But what she's saying is something to the effect of we are all born the same person. That is probably part of the ideology. Which is very interesting. So, yeah, she goes on to say nature versus nurture. Very fundamental assumption, actually. Yeah, it's very... 
weird. Yeah. But she's like, this would be the argument that's like, it's all nurture. Everyone is actually born the same and should become the same. And every difference that you observe is all nurture, which is a Which any psychologist will tell you is completely verifiably false. Right. It's both. Of course, it's both. (laughs) Verifiably false. Yeah. Yes. So then it says, yet today the court determines that holistic admissions programs like the one at the University of North Carolina has operated. Consistent with Grutter versus Bollinger are a problem with respect to achievement of that aspiration rather than a viable solution, as has long been evident to historians, sociologists, and policymakers alike. Again, I would like to note that she did not source anything there. Has long been evident to historians, sociologists, and policymakers alike. If it's so evident, where is the source? Where is the source? Like, this is the whole, it's so crazy to me that people think that it's ideological. I'm like, this is an ideology. It's based on no facts. The first one we read was based on court precedent. It's literally mind-breaking to me. I'm like, how is this even possible? It is. <sighs> it sucks because I don't want to be one of those people who thinks that, like, every judge that's appointed from the left... Yes. Is going to be some weird ideologue who is wants to legislate from the bench, but then they go and act like that's exactly what they are. Like you, like you're not even trying to hide it. Even if even if you are like serious, like just cite it. Then yes, in yes. that case, bring like just the facts. Cite a, <laughs> any source, any source. Like don't just make these sweeping they are, grand like claims or yes. something. Gulf-size yeah. racial gaps exist. Sociologists have known forever, forever that this is a problem. And it's like, what are we talking about? Like, these are all just things you have to believe. Like, where is the evidence? It's actually a logical fallacy that's not even the best form of the fallacy. It's called appeal to authority. The authority being the sociologist that you failed to cite. Yes. Okay. So here we go on. And this will summarize the whole thing. We've only gotten like one paragraph in, but it's just so riddled with stuff that you only need to read a couple paragraphs to realize how crazy it is. But okay, you can make up your own mind again. As I said, I'll read the thing directly. Yeah, we have we have no beliefs. Here. We just we yeah. You can disagree with us, and if you do, let us know so we can bring you on the pod and we can debate it because that would be great. Put yeah, put it on Twitter, and whenever we have uh, our allocation of tweets allowable for our eyes has reset, we'll see the tweets. <laughs> yes, apparently, <laughs> or, or something. Yeah, whatever. Oh, God. Justice Sotomayor has persuasively established that nothing in the Constitution or Title VI prohibits institutions from taking race into account to ensure the racial diversity of admits in higher education. I join her opinion without qualification. I write separately to expound upon, this is the really key part here, to expound upon the universal benefits of considering race in this context in response to a suggestion that has permeated this legal action from the start. So I would like to pause there just to be clear. This is literally irrelevant. Like they are here to decide what is within and outside the realms of the law. And she is like, I would like to write to express the benefits of race conscious policy. And it's like, we're not here to talk about that. We're literally here to question whether or not it's legal. That's that's really revealing because that's obviously her primary or I would say her only option 
Because if you're not going to cite law, precedent, or anything else, you're just and you're just going to come at it from an ideological point of view. Well, I guess you, as she's doing, you have to try a little bit to justify your ideological leaning. Let me tell you why this is good, rather than saying why it's legal, or why it has anything to do with what the Supreme Court is dictated to do, which is not tell you what is good about certain ideas. That's not the job of the Supreme Court. What you should do, if you had any argument that was justifiable by your diktat, but by what you were supposed to be doing, you're not your job, you're not a philosopher. You're a Supreme Court justice. Your job is to interpret the law and to decide whether or not the thing that they, you've been asked to take a look at is or is not legal. Exactly. Exactly. That's all you're doing. You're just deciding if it has a legal standing or a legal basis or, or you're making a legal call here. Right. Not a, a subjective, here's why this idea is good or bad. That's ridiculous. That's for other people to do. That's for pundits to do. That's for philosophers to do. That's for talking heads to do. That's for you to do at the dinner table or at the bar. Literally. For you, as the Supreme Court justice, this is why it's so disheartening that I, like I was saying earlier, that's the thing that, like the kind of second layer of why it's such like a heavy thing to face, to realize like, oh my God, these are just like weird political appointees because you're, it's like you're not even taking your job seriously. Like, don't you, you're a fucking Supreme Court judge. You're a lawyer. You're highly educated. You should know better. Yeah. You should know that your job here is to, here's the book again that I recommended last time, read law, reading law. That's your job. You understand law. You t- Anton Scalia. You just decide if this is legal, not if it's Let morally me start right, start out by telling you <laughs> some of the benefits to eating a high vegetable diet. Like, not your job. It's literally like it we're back matter. in middle school, like arguing about like what's is this better? Like, here's the benefits of this. Here's the pro- like we're in debate club or something, and it's like this is not debate. Literally, club. if this is the law of the United States, the highest court in the land, we are determining whether things are in alignment or in out of alignment with the Constitution. Okay, this right. Is, so here's how it works. The legislature <laughs> makes legislation. They debate it. They figure it out. Whether it's good or bad and whatever, they make make whatever law they want, kind of. Right. You right. know, and if there's a problem, ultimately, you know who figures it out? A Supreme Court. <laughs> Sometimes the Supreme Court of the United States. Right. And when it gets to that level, the that's the final straw. All we're debating at this point, at the very end, before we decide if this stands or falls, if this law gets to continue to exist or not exist, is one question and one question only. Is it legal? Right. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter a single shit, whether it's good, bad, makes people feel better, worse, good for the economy, bad for the... None of that is relevant to the court. That's why, That's literally the reason that there's a legislative branch that we break them up into branches of government. Right. Because sometimes there's a lot going on and you need someone that's basically obsessed with 
Yes. The law. Yeah. So that we want, that's what all we want from yeah. you. Yeah. To go on, I won't read all of uh, Jackson's uh, dissent, but I skipped ahead. Here's another part of the dissent. Um, the point is this. Given our history, the origin of persistent race-linked gaps should be no mystery. There's no source, again. There's no source. It's just something you have to believe. It has never... It's it's literally just an opinion. It shouldn't be a mystery. Oh, okay. Well, too bad it is. It has never been a deficiency of black Americans' desire or ability to, in Frederick Douglass's words, quote, stand on their own legs. Rather, it was always simply what Justice Harlan recognized 140 years ago, the persistent and pernicious denial of what had already been done in every state of the Union for the white race. What does that even mean? I'm not sure. And then it goes on to say, history speaks. In some form, it can be heard forever. The race-based gaps that first developed centuries ago are still echoes from the past that exist today. By all accounts, they are still stark. Start with wealth and income. Just four years ago, in 2019, black families' median wealth was approximately... I'm just going to cut it off there because I don't know why she's talking about this. I don't know why this is in the brief. I don't know. One of... It's also... This is another kind of issue that's like covers this that nobody seems to pay attention to or it only if you're the only people that are willing to talk about this are like what you might call like white white right wing extremists in a certain way i have some in mind but nobody will know their names because i follow strange things just to like hear different opinions but basically the idea of white is ridiculous just as ridiculous as it is to be the idea of black because it just as ridiculous, by the way, as it is to be, we call, so it used to be the proper term was African-American. And what that really meant is they came from a continent called Africa and they live in America. Okay. First of all, do you know what color Jamaicans are? Not African. I mean, they're black, but they're not from Africa. Uh, that Does that still apply? So now we call them black again. Right, We've gone right. back again to black. So, so ridiculous. There's so many different countries over there. They literally, literally don't like each other. Like they're literally at war with each other. They're breaking up into different countries, South Sudan, North Sudan, like just for one. Go example. to Africa. Yes. Yeah. Go go to Africa and be like, oh, are you from the Congo to someone that's from like, I don't know, Sudan or something? Yes. And then go, oh, well, I mean, you're kind of all the same though. And you know, you're it's all a gross overgeneralization. Completely. Because one of the my point was gonna be this. One of the richest, this used to be a statistic, I'm sure it still is, one of the richest factions in America, if you break it down beyond just the color of skin, which is completely, again, ridiculous, one of the richest, most well-off groups of people are Nigerian immigrants. Right, right. Yes, this has long they're been like, well known. They're v- yes, they're very wealthy. They're For some reason, Nigeria is producing some really smart people, and they're highly entrepreneurial. Right. And when they come here, they, for whatever reason, who who cares? But they excel, right? So, so yes. it doesn't. It just doesn't fit. Like the whole, no, all of these, yes, over broad generalizations yeah. have absolutely. And you're not going to cite your source. Then, you, like, 
what's the basis here? And that's and it is just weird. Right. And this was it's the stereotyping point that the, the court made that we didn't actually read just then, but they go in to talk about this stereotyping point a little finer in detail and say these categories don't make sense. They're like you don't differentiate between Asian. For example, you don't differentiate between South Asian and East Asian. And then they said, too, they were like, the racial categories that you consider don't even consider Middle Eastern people. There's no category for those people. And they do consider things like whether or not you're from Kentucky or the hills of Appalachia. So if you do consider those things, well, the like, how does the calculus work? Right. Like, what are the values? What do they weigh? Because... Asians are a group and so are apparently white poor kids from Kentucky. Like why I don't yes, understand. So how sense. are we even able to compare the groups? It does it's like it literally is apples and oranges. Yes. Yeah. So it's just Yeah, we're all fruit, but we're <laughs> but like what is this? We're all fruit, but <laughs> I'm gonna clip we're, that. We're all fruit, but there's a big <laughs> difference between tomatoes and pineapple. Oh my god, yeah. So anyway, so that's um, the one case. Now, I wanted to turn to the second case, um, uh, which is about this designer who, and I don't want to misrepresent the case because it has been misrepresented way too many times online. You will hear things like, this designer refused to provide services to a gay person, which is absolutely 100% not what happened. That is not. I don't even know what what this is. What is is this about? So, this is Creative LLC et al. versus Alanis et al. Oh, this is another Supreme Court thing I didn't hear about? So, this is the second of the three cases that came out this past week. Um, I don't know when this podcast will air, but this is the the last week of uh, June. So there was the case, the one we just read through, which was the race-based emissions policy at UNC and Harvard that they said were unconstitutional. And then there was the other case that we briefly mentioned earlier, which was about the student debt cancellation. Yeah, the debt. Yes. And then there was this one, which was about a designer who... Well, let me just tell you what is being said. People will say it was about... So, so far, so far what we've covered, this is a bad look <laughs> for the apparent... According to... Not according to me. <laughs> according to them... According to themselves, the left, the liberals, the progressives, whatever they... Whoever they are, according to themselves, this is not a good look for them. No, no. Because you're letting the right... If that's what you're going to call them, that these are right-wing justices or something, you're letting them be the cooler heads. Right. You're letting them get credit for right decisions. Yes. I mean, and I would, I literally would be interested in these other cases and hearing the dissent. And I'm, I probably will read through them just to see if it's in there somewhere, because I bet you they do make decent enough points. There's some points that are. Interesting. Yes. You some of those I can't I can't verify like the ones you were reading out like uh, if you don't cite a source I can't I can't you're just chat GPT you're hallucinating. <laughs> right. Like I I have no idea if it's right or wrong cuz I don't know what where you're looking to get the information. Right. Sure we've all heard that we're super racist but none of us think we're really racist so I need a source. It's not self-evident at least. So, yes. 
It's not. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'd be curious to know, but it would be, so if you're going to be split ideologically based on who appointed you or whatever, at least give yourself some credit by doing something credible. Like did was there anywhere? The only thing I heard was that was mildly persuasive from was that Vox thing I listened to, which was horrible. Oh, I didn't know about this. But yeah, what was it? It, it? Well, they were just, I think they focused on this Texas one, which I hadn't heard about. And they seemed to be, that was, it seemed like they maybe were using that as the one kind of the one legal thing that were that like maybe is being reversed. Like, Oh, there actually was a legal precedent here. And the court is just undoing it based on ideology. And here's, you know, how horrible that is. But this didn't have anything to do with Texas. So it's a little uh, something they're trying to pull the wool over my eyes or something weird's going on there. I think that might have been that was what I mentioned earlier, that University of Texas at Austin case. And I think if I get my facts straight and someone should fact check me on this, the case that was a white man who sued the University yes. of Texas at Austin saying that he had been reverse discriminated against because he was white. He was right. not allowed to the university. Now, obviously, as we just read, the uni- the court would have to decide whether or not UT Austin's race conscious admissions programs were within the limits of the law. So I don't know what that case said about how the program was operating and whether or not it was in the limits of the law. Um, but clearly in this case, they cited the limits and they said, Harvard, UNC, you are not within the limits. This is not constitutional. Right. Well, nevertheless, my point is just that like, there's a, there seems to be a stark difference between what we're, what's being called the, the conservative justices versus the liberal justices and the liberal justices aren't doing themselves any favors, which is annoying because you'd like there to be something there to try to figure out as like a thinking, interested individual to go, because it's going to be illuminating for the case and illuminating for the state of the country, the state of politics, all of that, because you could compare it to what's being said on the talking heads versus what actually was said in these dissents. And these dissents are... They sound so far, I'll come back and revisit it if I read them, but they sound like college kids that just wrote some woke ass like essay for their professor. No, it's ridiculous. Oh, I also found those cases while we were talking. So that was Fisher versus University of Texas. And there were actually two cases about that, um, about that case. So one in 2013 called Fisher one and one in 2016 called Fisher two. And in uh, Fisher 1, a case uh, ruled that strict scrutiny should be applied to determine the constitutionality of race-sensitive admissions policies, which is what we talked about in the case we just mentioned. So they said, you know, you have to comply with strict scrutiny, meaning it has to be measurable, essentially, whatever your goals are. And then in 2016, the second case, they ruled that University of Texas's program did pass the strict scrutiny policy. So... It's literally just apples to oranges. Like, that was fine because it passed strict scrutiny. These were not fine because they did not pass strict scrutiny. God, it's so interesting that they're using that right now because it's 
it's just another one of those things. Like it's so different. That's so similar and so different. You know, you have like a white kid. So, you know, I mean, it's like it's. But I mean, that's what's going on here, I guess. Right. The yeah, white and Asian, or the fa 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 sa 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 whatever the oh. this organization that brought these. Oh, <laughs> the SFFA or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sa sa fa fa. Oh my god. <laughs> so back to the second case: Creative LLC at all versus Elenus at all. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Yes. I'm interested. So this one has gotten so much, maybe even more incorrect coverage uh, because they made it about the denial of service to a protected class, which, as we will find out, the case is literally not about that. The case is about free speech. The case is about free speech. Let's read it. Freeze peach. <laughs> Freeze peach. Lori Smith, so she's the designer, wants to expand her graphic design business, 303 Creative LLC, to include services for couples seeking wedding websites. But Ms. Smith worries that Colorado will use the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act to compel her, in violation with the First Amendment, to create websites celebrating marriages she does not endorse. To clarify her rights, Ms. Smith filed a lawsuit seeking an injunction to prevent the state from forcing her to create websites celebrating marriages that defy her belief that marriage should be reserved to unions between one man and one woman. So that's the case. She did not design service to anyone. This is preemptive because Colorado has a law that she is worried that will penalize her for essentially free speech. So that's what the case is Wait, about. Wait, so this isn't even an actual, is this even a lawsuit? What is this? Yes, this is a lawsuit. So she's so seeking she's an injunction. Mm, I don't even know what that means. Let's define injunction. Is it like an in, is that like an in between a decision before I break the law? Like, I think I might be about to break the law. Can we so get a ruling here, please? An injunction is a judicial order that restrains a person from beginning or continuing an action threatening to invade the legal right of another. Okay, so kind of like what I'm saying, maybe yes. a little bit. So essentially, like I'm about, we're about, I'm about to do something, but I'm not sure if I'm allowed. Yes, and it's not clear. Right, it could be beginning or continuing. So it could be they're already doing something, and an injunction would stop you from doing it, or it could be they're about to do something, mm. and an injunction would stop that person from doing it. Like we're going to come into your home, like we said we're going to do it. We're about to go do it in ten days, and you could get an injunction to be like, no, you're not going to do that. Mm. So okay. she's filed an That's injunction or is seeking an injunction. So the CADA, the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act, prohibits all public accommodations from denying the full and equal enjoyment of its goods and services to any customer based on his race, creed, disability, sexual orientation, or other statutorily enumerated trait. The law defines public accommodation broadly to include almost every public-facing business in the state. Either state officials or private citizens may bring actions to enforce the law, and a variety of penalties can follow any violation. Before the district court, Ms. Smith and the state stipulated to a number of facts. Ms. Smith is, this is a key point, is, quote, willing to work with all people regardless of classifications such as race, creed, sexual orientation, and gender, and quote, 
will gladly create custom graphics and websites for clients of any sexual orientation. She will not produce content that contradicts biblical truth regardless of who orders it. Ms. Smith's belief that a marriage is a union between one man and one woman is a sincerely held conviction. Ms. Smith provides design services that are expressive and her original customized creations contribute to the overall message her business conveys through the websites it creates. The wedding website she plans to create will be expressive in nature and will be customized and tailored through close collaboration with individual couples and will express Ms. Smith's and 303 Creatives, that's her company, message celebrating and promoting her view of marriage. Viewers of Ms. Smith's websites will know that the websites are her original artwork and therefore are numerous and sorry, and there are numerous companies in the state of Colorado and across the nation that offer custom website design services. So that's the background. So I would just like to pause. Wait, yeah, so go ahead. The the first so the first sentences that you read there, can you read them again? Because maybe I'm not as confused as I think I am. Yes. Because it seemed like we're walking the first a fine part, line here. It seemed like the first part contradicted the second part, but then once I heard the second part, I thought maybe I didn't listen closely enough to the first part. Yeah. So essentially, she will not refuse service to anyone merely on the basis of all these protected characteristics. So she's not saying, I won't design a certain person, like a gay person or a black person, a website. She's saying, I will not put things that I do not believe on my website because you tell me to do it. Uh, just on her website. So she'll provide a service, but she won't, what? What is it that she's got, what, what is the injunction? You know what I mean? Like, what is it that she's, a, what, well, essentially they would what's say, what's the conflict here? You know, maybe they would say, okay, well, we want to say X, Y, Z. You know, we're celebrating the marriage of who and who, and it's gay and, you know, God loves gays. Can you put that on my website? And she's saying, I know. Right. And she would say, you can't force me to say that. I will not put that on the website. I will build you a website, but I will not put that on it. So that's the distinction we're making. This one is a little that's difficult. A really interesting that this is even. Yeah. So a Supreme Court. It goes situation. on to say. Ultimately, the district court held that Miss Smith was not entitled to the injunction she sought, and the Tenth Circuit affirmed. So essentially, the prior courts up till now said that she was not um, able to get this injunction. What is the injunction for here for her? So part of the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act is that if you don't comply with it, there are penalties. And so she is saying that, look, I think I'm going to have to not comply with this law and that the state is going to level penalties on me for not doing that. And that is going to be wrong and unconstitutional. Okay. So they're not granting her this. The fi the prior courts did not grant her this. What happens oh, okay. is the Supreme Court will actually reverse that decision. That was their ruling. And are they? Is that what? So they gave her the injunctions, yes. Okay, interesting, because the, the gay cake people, from what I remember, even though everyone thinks they're the fuck them, illegal, bad people... I think what happened in their case is they won. Yes. Ultimately. Yes. And ultimately, the court was like, actually, 
you can't compel speech and you that's the whole this whole freedom of speech thing freedom doesn't means yeah you could say what you want to say sure that's part of it that's what everyone focuses on but it also means you're not you don't have to say things you don't want to say right that's right. also part of free speech so if exactly. you don't want to bake a cake that says God loves gays or whatever thing you want on there or, or even whatever. I don't know what the cake even was, but if you just don't want to do that, you don't, you can't be compelled to, to say those words, to put, to write those words down. That's psych. I mean, in, under that argument version of the argument, it sounds crazy. Of course you can't be forced to do that. Yes, exactly. And so it sounds like the Supreme Court in this case is saying the same thing. They're saying, yeah, all those other courts got this totally wrong. You cannot compel this person to say things that they don't believe. That's crazy. Yes. So the decision of the Supreme Court. Or or not crazy. It's illegal. Right. Right. So the decision of the Supreme Court was that the First Amendment prohibits Colorado from forcing a website designer to create expressive designs speaking messages with which the designer disagrees. They were smart by using the word expression because that's what the other side likes to harp on is expression, 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 mm. not just speech. And so it's and that's fine. Usually uh, I don't really see the distinction. But in this case, I see what they're getting at in a sense that like you want me to express myself like my art. Yes. You want my art to say things, particular things that I don't want my art to say like that's fucking psycho like i'm i'm basically a painter right you can't force me to paint exactly porn. yes i don't want to like that's crazy so the fact that this oh my god like it's we're so something is so wrong yes we'll get into with it this, with the people of this country at this point not because you want to make porn but because you don't understand the problem you don't know what is going on you're so confused and you're fighting against yourself. You're trying to overturn the fundamental rights laid down at the founding of the country for your benefit. Right. And you want them upended for ideological, feeling-based shit that doesn't matter. And the fact that it doesn't matter is part of the beauty. That's why it works, because you don't matter. You matter as much as everyone else does. And th the fact that you matter equally puts limitations on stuff. It puts limitations on what you can compel other people to do. Right. Conflicting rights, yeah, so to speak. Yeah, no, this one is so important, which is why I wanted to read it, just because it talks about free speech, which I think is lost in the general debate about this particular case. Is like no one that I've seen write anything about this mentions that it's actually about free speech, not about the denial of services. It's about free speech, and the way they talk about free speech is very important and pressing, I think. So it says, the framers designed, the framers of the Constitution, designed the free speech clause of the First Amendment to protect the, quote, freedom to think as you will and to speak as you think, end quote. I'll stop doing the quotes. Did this because court so case, <laughs> yeah, and I was going to ask, did this court case as well break down across, quote unquote, ideological lines? Yes. So actually, the court was split in the exact same way that it was split on the last case. So Kagan, okay. Sotomayor, and Jackson were the three dissenters and everyone else gave the majority. So the Supreme Court has been completely and utterly destroyed. 
Well, I mean, it's... It's literally just a reflection of politics. It's still getting the rulings right because the majority is still, I think... Because there's a maj- because of ideological reasoning, though. It's unfortunate. Yeah, it's unfortunate that we're having Supreme Court justices writing things that are so ideological. Um, but, yes, I think the court is still passing down the right decisions. That's what I was trying to say. Yeah, but but it could ha- but what could happen is it could be flipped the yes. other way, and then all of all, what that means is because a, de- a Democrat appointed this next Supreme Court justice, that now the all of this is flipped, and and this gets this decision comes down the opposite. Every decision we're talking about comes down the opposite way, and the fact that it's based now that that happens because of ideology and politics is. F- really really fucked up like that's a real big problem like that's a serious problem yeah no it's bad but um because that means it will the country will be fucked ultimately as soon as that happens as soon as it's four three the other direction or whatever the breakdown is we're fucked well so yeah the other thing i will say to that is you know because that can be you know kind of doomsday I think, you know, these people may change after a long time as well. Like, I'm kind of hopeful that, uh, you know, because it's a lifetime position, you actually may become more sort of, I don't know, philosophically grounded as you have to legislate more and more cases over the course of your life. Um, And so I could imagine that actually people like Kagan, Sotomayor, and Jackson – who may be seen as ideological and in their arguments that are ideological based after having to deal with so many different cases of different contexts and application of the law in different contexts might come to see the law differently over time. I'm kind of hopeful there. And I think people probably do change over the course of their tenure on the court because of that. And that's one of the really cool parts about the court. Hopefully the justices get along personally. Yeah. You'd hope. Yeah. So anyway, so... This one goes on to say, uh, this court case, the freedom to speak is among our inalienable rights. The freedom of thought and speech is indispensable to the discovery and spread of political truth. For these reasons, if there is any fixed star in our constitutional constellation, it is the principle that the government may not interfere with an uninhibited marketplace of ideas. This court has previously faced cases where governments have sought to test these foundational principles. In Barnett, the court held that the state of West Virginia's efforts to compel school children to salute the nation's flag and recite the Pledge of Allegiance invaded the sphere of intellect and spirit, which it is the purpose of the First Amendment to reserve from all official control. I just wanted to pause there because that's such an interesting thing. Who wrote that? Thing. Oh, so this is the um, syllabus of... The, the second case, Creative versus Alanis. Um, so this is written by the court reporter summarizing the case, but that would be um, essentially the majority opinion because that's what she's writing up is the opinion of the court. Yeah, that is interesting that they would use... I mean, they're obviously sp- going, coming out ahead and saying this isn't ideological because if we were really the conservative sycophants that you think we are, we wouldn't be looking at this other case and going, they got that right too. Because you'd think the conservative psycho would be like, you better damn stand for that Pledge of Allegiance and salute the flag. Well, I just don't think they're thinking like that at all. I don't think they think we need to come out and like 
present ourselves as not the conservative sycophants we think they think we are. I think they're just like, what is the precedent? What's the law? This is the, how the law has been applied, and this is what we need to analyze to evaluate this case. I don't think it's about conservative or liberal at all for the quote-unquote conservative justices. I don't know why we like no, feel compelled maybe, to like push maybe, them into yeah. that category. Maybe what I mean is that it's just it's whether they meant it or not. It's, it's maybe it ju- acts it's in that justifies, way. Sure, yeah, it justifies the the it it preempts that claim that like this is an ideological decision. Mm, okay, sure. Because yeah, they're yeah. literally using they chose for their precedent like something where you if you thought they were tilted, they would lean the other way on. Sure. Yeah. If it was ideological, they probably would have, you know, not permitted that, you know, case to be ruled that way. Right. But they did permit that case to be ruled that way. You can't be compelled to say the Pledge of Allegiance. So anyway, which I, which I support that. It's very interesting. Yeah. So um, they go on to say, um, in Hurley versus Irish American Gay Lesbian and Bisexual Group of Boston Incorporated. The court held. Shit, that's specific. Yeah, so that's a case. So this is like going through all the case law. You know, you have to apply. What were the rulings before? How do we apply them in this case? So in that case, the court held that Massachusetts public accommodation statute could not be used to force veterans organizing a parade in Boston to include a group of gay, lesbian, and bisexual individuals because the parade was protected speech. And requiring veterans to include voices they wish to exclude would impermissibly require them to alter the expressive content of their parade. Another contentious, interesting case. And in Boy Scouts of America versus Dale, when the Boy Scouts sought to exclude Assistant Scoutmaster James Dale from membership after learning he was gay, the court held the Boy Scouts to be an expressive association entitled to First Amendment protection. The court found that forcing the Boy Scouts to include Mr. Dale would undoubtedly interfere with its choice not to propound a point of view contrary to its beliefs. Wow, that's interesting. Never heard that one before. Yeah, so interesting. Then it says, these cases illustrate that the First Amendment protects an individual's right to speak his mind, regardless of whether the government considers his speech sensible and well-intentioned or deeply misguided and likely to cause anguish or incalculable grief. Generally, too, the government may not compel a person to speak its own preferred messages. That's very key there. The government may not compel a person to speak its own preferred messages. So exactly what this case is about. Applying these principles... That's the epitome, the epitome of looking at whether or not something is legal... Versus all other ways of thinking. Like, it's just about the law. Right. So applying these principles to the party's stipulated facts, the court agrees with the Tenth Circuit that the wedding websites Ms. Smith seeks to create qualify as pure speech protected by the First Amendment under this court's precedence. Ms. Smith's websites will express and communicate ideas, namely those that celebrate and promote the couple's wedding and unique love story and those that celebrate and promote what Ms. Smith understands to be a marriage. Speech conveyed over the internet, like all manner of speech, qualifies for the First Amendment protections. 
And the court agrees with the Tenth Circuit that the wedding websites Ms. Smith seeks to create involves her speech, a conclusion supported by the party's stipulations, including that Ms. Smith intends to produce a final story for each couple using her own words and original artwork. While Ms. Smith's speech may combine with the couples in a final product, an individual does not forfeit constitutional protection simply by combining multifarious voices in a single communication. So they were saying because she's working with her clients, that doesn't forfeit her right to, you know, free speech, essentially. Right. So then it says, Ms. Smith seeks to engage in protected First Amendment speech. Colorado seeks to compel speech she does not wish to provide. As the Tenth Circuit observed, if Ms. Smith offers wedding websites celebrating marriages she endorses, the state intends to compel her to create custom websites celebrating other marriages she does not. Colorado seeks to compel this speech in order to excise certain ideas or viewpoints from the public dialogue. That's so interesting. The court, the Supreme Court of the United States said that sentence. Colorado seeks to compel this speech in order to excise certain ideas or viewpoints from the public dialogue. Isn't that crazy? Well, like, as a sentence? Citation, I, I will say citation needed, but I will also say I cannot think... There is a citation there. That's from a case called Turner okay, Broadcasting well, System Incorporated versus FCC. Yeah, see, because I can't imagine why else. It sounds true to me. I mean, why else... Would you have that law? Yeah. No, it's so interesting. There's no reason. So, indeed, the Tenth Circuit. So it's interesting because that's an exclusionary. The argument is exclusionary in that in the way the Supreme Court's putting it. The other side would like to focus on inclusion, mm. which is interesting. It's it, yeah, because that's like the opposite of the ideological bent. Yeah, just like we were talking about in the beginning. Ver, you know, freedom to say what you want versus freedom to not be compelled to say what you don't want. Like that's, I don't know, like has too many negatives in it. So it's difficult for people to wrap their heads around. But the fact remains that you have to look at the whole picture, which seems that they're doing. I think that's the story they're trying to tell here by invoking these other cases. Right. Yeah. No, it's super interesting. So... Then they go on to say... So what does that do to the... So does that law... That I mean, they're basically overturning Colorado law through this r- ruling. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Um, so here, I'll keep reading. Um, indeed, the Tenth Circuit recognized that the coercive elimination of dissenting ideas about marriage constitutes Colorado's very purpose in seeking to apply its law to Ms. Smith. But while the Tenth Circuit thought that Colorado could compel speech from Ms. Smith consistent with the Constitution, this court, the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court's First Amendment precedents teach otherwise. In Hurley, Dale, and Barnett, those are all cases, the court found that governments impermissibly compelled speech in violation of the First Amendment when they tried to force speakers to accept a message with which they disagreed. Here, Colorado seeks to put Ms. Smith to a similar choice. If she wishes to speak, she must either speak as the state demands or face sanctions for expressing her own beliefs, sanctions that may include compulsory participation in remedial training, filing periodic compliance reports, 
and paying monetary fines. Oh my God. This oh my is an God. impermissible abridgment of the First Amendment's right to speak freely. What a scam. Isn't that crazy? Colorado, you suck. It's exactly like Jordan Peterson said, like the whole like woke training that he's being forced to go through because of his malpractice lawsuit. That's what this that type of law is exactly what caused the Jordan Peterson right. phenomenon. Yeah. That's how he got his start was compelled speech laws in Canada. Yes. Right. And so it says under Colorado's logic the government may compel anyone who speaks for pay on a given topic to accept all commissions for work on that same topic, no matter the message, if the topic somehow implicates a customer's statutorily protected trait. <sighs> it's amazing. I mean, isn't it crazy? I have, let, let me say this I am just as afraid of the right wing of politics as I am the left wing. Oh, yeah. I'm ba- I don't like it. I don't like any government. I don't like any extremists about government or any big government people. Get those people away. Yeah, I'm. I'm like a small. What they use? There used to be this thing called minarchy, which was like, basically, it's not anarchy, but it's like a, it's like a minimal government. Like the whole. Mm. Like at this point in our like political trajectory, like the goal of a minarchist party would would like essentially the platform would be reduce government. So whatever we're doing, it's in the name of reducing government, compelling citizens to do things, require things of them, take things from them. So the lightest touch possible that government could possibly have is the government we need. That's the best government there could be if the government's going to be good at all. And I feel uneasy about the fact that the Supreme Court is ruling these cases so well Mm. what do you mean because i'm well it's like it's like what we were talking about well whether or not this this podcast should come out before the other one because it's more relevant but the i was talking about monica talking about rfk and i was sent her that text and i said help i'm scared this guy could get me (laughs) to vote period and let alone vote for a democrat and she was like, I would too. But she made this point that like basically was what's the next, you know, basically it's it's common. You know, you get political promises. The the guy seems one way, gets in, turns out to be another way, goes along with the deep state, whatever, whatever. So there's something, something suspicious because i don't trust any of them so why are these guys doing such a good job like that's oh what i'm God. saying like what what you're, you're supposed so to cynical. be you're like no one in power can be to... good <laughs> yes oh literally God. it's like you're supposed to be bad corrupt people no, you're all bad. supposed to be partisan politicians so maybe maybe they aren't and that's weird but you know where where i think it comes it's i mean Oh, I, that was almost a Freudian slip. I was going to say where it comes from is that show. But I watched, do you remember, did you watch that show, The Handmaid's Tale? No. Oh, my God. Oh That's my crazy. God. Okay, oh, my God. So <laughs> I just can't believe you did it. It was such a phenomenon. But basically, the government had been taken over by some right-wing faction. And the like women that were fertile, because there's a fertility issue were basically forced to be these handmaids and the handmaids had to like breed with these other couples so that they could take their baby and ha- and raise a baby. And the whole kind of premise of this was obviously a fertility issue 
And so this was like some kind of, so this right wing thing kind of came along eventually as, as like a corrective measure. Like we've got to do what's best really is best for the country. We cannot have our population go to zero Mm. or whatever, you know, that's like some kind of like premise here. And that, that, but ultimately what you ended up with was this psychotic totalitarian depraved system. And I think that the whole story is hyperbolic and ridiculous, but something along those veins is what I'm talking about as far as being concerned with the fact that why is this? Because I would never want to find myself in support of a faction that ended up ultimately in some future date being the exact nightmare. Like we talked about with Pence having, if we, I can't remember if we posted that one, but you know, um, you picking up the same, the same battering ram, the same baton to beat you with from just a different hand. So I put it in the left hand and beat you. I put it in the right hand and beat you. You're always getting beaten with the baton. It's always the same baton. It's just which side and how they, right. you know, from which direction they're over exercising government so, force. It's just changing the group on which the force is exercised. Yeah. And, yeah. and maybe there is something deeper here, you know, with, with the whole analyzing of the legal system and how these things have been ruled and whether or not they're right, but they're doing their job. So that's, I mean, yeah. I'm like golf clap, I guess. Anyway, well, I can, <laughs> you're taking off your clothes. Oh my God. It's just getting so warm in here. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We'll have to wrap it up. So this is it. And I'll skip ahead a little bit of this, uh, you know, overview of the second case. Um, the state stresses that Miss Smith offers her speech for pay and does so through her company in which she is the sole owner. I'm summarizing there. But many of the world's great works of literature and art were created with an expectation of compensation. And speakers do not shed their First Amendment protections by employing the corporate form to disseminate their speech. So if you're getting paid for your speech, you don't shed uh, you know, your freedom of uh, speech. Colorado urges the court to look at the reason Miss Smith, Smith <laughs> refuses to offer the speech it seeks to compel, and it claims that the reason is that she objects to the protected characteristics of certain customers. But the party's stipulations state to the contrary that Miss Smith will gladly conduct business with those having protected characteristics. Again, that was her first point. That was kind of tricky. So she will agree to have business with those having protected characteristics, so long as the custom graphics and websites she is asked to create do not violate her beliefs. Ms. Smith stresses that she does not create expressions that defy any of her beliefs for any customer, whether that involves encouraging violence, demeaning another person, or promoting views inconsistent with her religious commitments. The First Amendment's protections belong to all, not just to speakers whose motives the government finds worthy. In this case, Colorado seeks to force an individual to speak in ways that align with its views, but defy her conscience in a manner of major significance. In the past, other states in Barnett, Hurley, and Dale have similarly tested the First Amendment's boundaries by seeking to compel speech they thought vital at the time. But abiding the Constitution's commitment to the freedom of speech means that all will encounter ideas that are misguided or even hurtful. Consistent with the First Amendment, the nation's answer is tolerance, not coercion. 
The First Amendment envisions the United States as a rich and complex place where all persons are free to think and speak as they wish, not as the government demands. Colorado cannot deny that promise consistent with the First Amendment. And then they say the thing is reversed. The prior decisions. Well, I would love to have a conversation with Miss Smith. Congratulations, Miss Smith. Congratulations, America, for the Supreme Court decisions. And probably congratulations us for probably being the only podcast on the internet that is uh, actually looking at the facts. Literally. At least at this point. So, yeah, that's... Isn't uh, it inspiring? I just, like, thought, like, wow, this is a big win for America. And I thought it was so sad yes. that people on the internet were, like, coming and attacking it. I was like, this is a huge day for individuals and liberty. And... Yes, I fight yeah. the urge to have... Uh, to be inspired by things like this, but it is... <laughs> comforting you know it's uh taken on an individual basis is probably how it ought to be taken and in these cases it seems like from what i know the 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 right the proper decision has been reached a comforting decision has been reached and it's it is fantastic that this that these supreme court cases set further precedent in regards to free speech and even the uh, school admissions and paying money yeah. or getting uh, whatever, all of these um, really are going to affect uh, the individual. Yeah. So they're very, the, the outcomes are very individual focused rather than, group focused exactly it's an interesting situation Not the government, it's very um, nor can universities force you to you know be a part of some group ideology collection. yeah yeah they were saying yeah. the individual so must prevail so that is interesting it's good news it's helpful i'm surprised by myself and by the court but for now I know. I never uh, read these things. So this is like the first court cases I have ever fully read. I'm sure I probably read excerpts in school. But uh, I've never actually went and read them. And I just got to say, like, I literally almost read the whole thing. I read, like, so many pages. I never read things, you know, like that. But I was like, oh, my God, this is so interesting. Like, it's so dense. It's so intellectually engaging. It's like a real debate. And these people, like... I don't know. It's just so inspiring to like know that this is still going on in America. And yeah, I was just so shocked too, oh, like yeah. the discrepancy between what was being said in the documents and what's being said like politically on the news and stuff. And you're like, these people aren't even reading the cases. Like if they read the cases, I think they would have different conclusions. Yeah. And I definitely will. I guess I would add like, don't rest on your laurels here because just because the Supreme Court made of a course. good yeah. One time yeah, doesn't mean change. that like everything is great. You're always trying to bring us down, other... but okay. <laughs> no, no. I, I think that there is a positive, definitely positive here. Um, I'm just thinking of, I'm thinking of my, I had to take my American government or whatever it was in college so everything that you're supposed to do in high school when you do it in college it's always like a little bit of a higher level so i remember reading some of these court cases um and i remember reading about like the commerce clause and how things in that regard get regulated mm, yeah and there's a lot of bigger 
big big problems, big issues at hand that are has become institutional and sure, yeah, and whatever you know that that are concerning and and that may be you know, lead to this kind of constant battle over the obvious, you know, like, why are we, why are we still trying to, why are we still, it's called the first amendment. Like we're still talking about this. You haven't figured out what that means and why the fact that we haven't is speaks to a greater problem because I think that there, I would be, I just, yeah, I'm happy, but I would be curious to see how like things that are more ingrained in the system get uh, adjudicated. Let's keep going. You know what I mean? Like, let's get some more decisions. Yeah. Let's see how how it turns out. Because I think these these cases were, like we said, for the individual, and they were completely. I mean, they could have been at least completely uh, reliant on like the basic laws, like literally the constitution of the country. Yeah. So, which is what all laws should have as a touchstone. Right. Well, that's the so, mandate of the Supreme Court, too, is to make sure that laws right. are constitutional. And yeah, I think they definitely did that today. I think it's, yeah. you know, mind boggling to hear the dissent not even reference precedent or the Constitution and instead be arguing for the benefits and detriments of particular policy. And you're like, that is literally. Irrelevant. Literally not your job. Literally not your job. And it's funny because people in the news are saying the opposite. They're saying that the conservatives are being ideological. And I'm like, it is literally the opposite. It's almost prohibited for them to be having these opinions. Right. Like, because it's not about, like, this is a job. It's specific. And you're utterly failing at what you're supposed to do. Not because you thought you would have come on... heads not tails but because the way you argued you even yes. pl- yeah you weren't even playing By the right rules you weren't even flipping coins yes r- literally you're doing something else and it's and it's actually propagandistic yes to be honest is. from the from their side it's it's literally like let me tell you what's good about an idea let me tell you what has what we all we all know this experts say no citation no i mean where are we what are we doing this is yeah that's it's just that that's so and the fact that these are lifetime appointments highly disconcerting i know well i wonder you know one if they'll change over the course of their time on the court but then two like what is the grounds for like if you're as you're saying it does kind of seem like they're not doing their job correctly like if there's grounds for impeaching a supreme court justice like I kind of do feel like in some sense, and obviously I've only read two of these, so you'd have to read a lot more and see what's going on. But I mean, it just seemed like, yeah, the way you're arguing this is not appropriate for your job and how the Supreme Court is supposed to work by law. So that should almost be grounds for like, you can't be allowed to do this job um, if you're not going to do it properly. So I don't know. Oh, yeah. I, I, I guarantee you in the background, there are political operatives that are planning for the distant, distant future. Oh, my God. Here we go. Prob- and probabilities <laughs> of making sure that they can stack the, the court. And st- because, well, when there were, there were, I think it was during the time of Obama or may- maybe when they were talking about the potential Supreme Court nominees and that. Uh, they were highly motivated to find somebody young, so that they would have a long tenure to, on the court to or secure yeah. a long tenure. Yeah, so that kind of politicking is 
borderline treason. Oh yeah, it happens. No, it's terrible. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so. well, that was a deep dive. We don't usually do these deep dives, but um, yeah, I had some time to research it. I know we've been missing our podcast dates, so if you're listening to this, I apologize. But follow us on Twitter, Social Psychopod. Um, we have no followers, so you could be the first. <laughs> Zero. <laughs> you could be number one. Oh, my God. Anyway, 